Microbial Nation, and welcome back to another episode of the Microbe Moment. Today, we'll be talking about our picks for the very best, I mean your picks for the very best microbiology breakthroughs of 2021. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And today we're joined by two additional hosts. Hi, Florina. Hi, Disha. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Before we get into the breakthroughs, do you all want to introduce yourselves a little bit? Tell people why you're here and who you are? Yes, of course. Disha, do you want to go ahead? Um, no, you can go ahead first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. I'm uh, Florian. I'm uh, originally from Germany, but now living in Belgium. After I studied biochemistry in Düsseldorf, a beautiful town that you should definitely visit if you are in Europe. I came over to Leuven in Belgium, which has the largest university in Belgium. And here I'm doing my PhD in the field of bioengineering, or more precisely, as I like to say, beer engineering, as we are a yeast-focused lab and even have a more stronger focus on beer research. And I'm dealing with some beer quality factors uh, most importantly, gushing. You might never have heard of this. Um, gushing describes an effect um, of beers just foaming, gushing out of the bottle um, without previous shaking. And this can happen if the malt that was used to make the beer is spoiled with certain fungi. And I'm trying to come up with a method to detect this um, gushing causes earlier in the process. That's so cool. So did you go specifically to study beer or when you got your PhD, you just found a lab that was happened to be studying beer? No, I actually actively decided to to go here for this yeah, beer studies. Um, I'm a home brewer already since the mid of my, my bachelor's studies in Düsseldorf. I started then very basic with some plastic buckets um, and then a simple induction plate in my kitchen to, to make my own beer. Uh, and then I was, yeah, addicted or became addicted to it. Um, <laughs> and I was in searching for labs doing research on this. And there are actually only a few in Europe, at least. Leuven is probably one of the most important centers for beer research, together with Munich and Berlin. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I decided to go to Leuven because I did an internship in the same lab. Um, yeah, and actually I'm, I scaled up a little bit in my home brewing as well as in wheel brewing as I'm also leading our five hectoliter test brewery. Oh, that's cool. Which is pretty cool, yes. Yeah. So what's your favorite beer to make? Uh, I'm making so many different styles. Um, I would say the more simple styles are my favorites. The simple pale ale can really satisfy me. Um, just some malts, some hops, nothing too fancy, then the results are definitely more predictable. So is your favorite beer to make the same as your favorite beer to drink? Mm, not necessarily. I mean, living in Belgium, you get in contact with a lot of funky styles, sour beers, for example. And I would say I really got the, the sour beer fever recently, um, but these are quite difficult to make for a home brewer um, and they take a lot of time and involve more than just yeast as a microbe to ferment them which makes it yeah more difficult uh, to control the fermentation process so I would say 
Sour beers are currently my favorite style to drink if I'm in a cafe or bar, but definitely not my favorite style to make at home. <laughs> yeah, you got to use like a uh, lactic acid bacteria, right? Yeah, exactly. Lactic acid bacteria or um, pediococca are, are mostly used, yes. And what is your ultimate career goal? Are you going to go open up your own brewery someday or... Yeah, that would be awesome. I mean, I'm definitely playing with this idea, um, but it requires some funding money, which I unfortunately don't have. Um, <laughs> maybe I should start a Patreon now. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this is this would be nice in the yeah in the long future, I would say, and for the near future after my PhD. Ask me again when I have my PhD because I really don't know where I will end up. <laughs> Yeah. I hear that. I have a PhD and I don't know where I'm going to end up. So Yeah, see. <laughs> but if you make a brewery, we'll come out and visit you. Please do so. Disha, what about you? What's your micro moment? Well, uh, yep, I am doing my PhD in microbiology from the University of Bern. Uh, I did my bachelor's and master's in bioinformatics from India. After that, I worked for a few years in uh, metagenomics research, which is mainly computational biology in a multinational company in India. But I was bitten by the bug of microbiology still. And then I started my PhD in wet lab biology three years back. My PhD is at the interface of microbiology, immunology and computational biology. It is focused on Salmonella typhimurium, the most common cause of uh, diarrhea. I'm studying a potential live vaccine candidate uh, against the infections caused by Salmonella. Uh, so basically, this live vaccine is a living but a not so harmful form of Salmonella, and it can be used to dampen the infection of the harmful Salmonella. The last few years have offered a steep upwards learning curve and yeah i enjoy doing research so what is it like doing a vaccine research um well i sh must say that it is a bit difficult for me at least uh, also the micro that i am dealing with salmonella it has been studied quite by quite a lot number of labs uh, around the world. And there are actually a few live vaccines already developed for Salmonella. So it is a bit competitive, I would say, but it is still interesting because none of the live vaccines that have been studied so far are so effective than the one that I'm studying. Uh, it's still not out, this live vaccine candidate, but in the future, we hope that it uh, would be out and would be made commercially active. That's exciting. So what stage are you at in the development of that vaccine? Are you testing on people yet or is it still in preliminary research? It's very much preliminary. Uh, I'm studying it in uh, mouse models. Mm -hmm. So we haven't reached the humans yet. Uh, let's see if it would be limited to veterinary uh, research or it would reach the human clinical trials as well. Because I think salmonella infection is common across uh, all organisms equally, especially chickens and pigs. So I think that's also one of uh, the directions that we would want to take, uh, particularly my lab would want to take. Well, great. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're excited for you to be here and help us share the bomb microbiology or the bomb as we like to call it 2021. 
But first, we have a the mystery micro moment to discuss. Tess, can you give us last week's clues to one more time? Certainly. So last week, we've been, or I guess over the past couple of weeks, we've been discussing December babies that grew up to be magnificent microbiologists. Particularly the last two podcast episodes, we talked about the some of the greatest microbiologists of all time, at least according to some. And that would be Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur. Yep. And the first week of our mystery micro moment was none other than Esther Ledenberg. And so many of you out there got it right, which was truly amazing to see you guys. You definitely know your stuff. Let's see. It was uh, Marco Martin, of course, got it right by sending us a Lux art of Esther Ledenberg. Which, if you haven't seen any of Marco Martin's Lux art, actually, I think it's his wife's, right? His wife does all of the um, the portraits. Yeah, he does it too, but he says his wife is the true artist. And I highly suggest going on his uh, Twitter page. It's amazing what she can do with it. Yeah, it's it's truly a work of art. And so we'll definitely link him in the show notes below. And then we also had Akpin Friday, who also got it right. So good job, you all. And then last week's micro moment, I guess, was a little tough because I don't think anyone got it right. Maybe I made it too hard. Uh, I couldn't get it, that's for sure. Yeah, but then like when I explained it to you, you were like, oh. Yeah. You have to be in the right right, uh, frame of mind, I think. So last week, I will repeat the mystery micro moment clues, and we'll see if um, Florian or Disha knows the answer. So... Clue number one, this December baby passed endless hours under what they called the dreaming tree. While not as famous as the kid would grow up to be, the tree did outlive the kid by nearly 40 years. Both would battle diseases before meeting death, one likely from microbial pathogen and the other from a non-microbial cause of death. Clue number two. During the height of the Spanish flu epidemic or the 1918 flu epidemic, This person falsified their records so they could join the American Ambulance Corps and went to France at the end of World War I. Clue number three. During World War II, the U.S. government came up with a cartoon that was entitled Insects as Carriers of Diseases, and this was created by this person's company in 1945. And then I had a bonus clue. So clue number four was... Although this person is no longer with us, their company is everywhere producing beloved forms of entertainment for generations. One film released in 2010 even featured a girl isolated from Corona. Well, does anyone have any guesses? I certainly don't know the answer. If I would guess, I would say Walt Disney. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know what the movie is, the 2010 movie is? No. Any guesses? No. So the the 2010 movie is Tangled, uh, where she is isolated from the castle Corona. Ah, okay. I see. Okay, that was around two corners. (laughs) (laughs) Just to throw you off a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, but back to today's episode on... The Greatest Microbiology Breakthroughs of 2021. We asked everyone out there to rank your favorite micro moment of 2021. We had people voting from all over the world, including the United States, France, Canada, India, and Belgium. So thanks for everyone for voting. 
Yeah. And today we have, you know, four hosts from three different time zones from all across the world, too. So this is truly a very global event, bringing you the best of microbiology from 2021. So our number four pick was plant protein or microbial protein, which is better? John, can you tell us a little bit about this paper and what they found? Sure. So this comes from the paper Photovoltaic Driven Microbial Protein Production Can Use Land and Sunlight More Efficiently Than Conventional Crops. And you can find the journal of PNAS, and it's from June 29th of this year. We have the authors of Dorian Ledger, Silvio Matassa, Ed Noor, Alan Shepon, Ron Milio, and Aaron Barr-Evan. So as a little background, population growth and dietary pattern changes or food security is putting pressure on the need for more sustainable methods, which is a big challenge. And this is especially true due to the stress of climate change. Despite improvements in cultivating crops over the years, humanity may be reaching biological constraints, and there is a limit to incorporating more land for agriculture as around half the land suitable for agriculture is being used right now, and almost 9% of the world went hungry in 2019. 9%? Yeah. Wow. I wonder if it went up in 2020. Uh, I hope not. Probably did. It, it may be, especially since shipping routes are being affected. That's true. By COVID. Yeah, we might even see an even bigger increase. Well, probably a bigger increase the years to come as well. That's very true. Mm. So this is where they looked at microbes for food. Uh, microbial biomass can be grown for protein-rich feed and food supplements, and this is a process that's called single-cell protein. It utilizes water and nitrogen more efficiently than other crops, two components which are high in demand. And this paper specifically focuses on photovoltaics, which is a method of generating electricity using solar cells or photosynthesis in an artificial way to convert carbon dioxide in the air and water to make electron donors for microbes to make energy and grow to be used in their metabolic processes, removing the need for agriculture-derived glucose or fossil fuels derived from methane and methanol. In this case, the electron donors are hydrogen, formite, and methanol, which can be used in different metabolic pathways to produce energy and cell growth. These metabolic processes include the Kelvin cycle, serine, and RUMP cycle. Rump. So the nuances aren't important, especially since I'm not a biochemist, and I've gone through the Kelvin cycle three times and still can't remember it. Florian is. Maybe you could tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a little bit of time ahead. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're definitely not too important in this uh, paper. Yeah. So the nuances aren't important in this case, but the end result is that these processes are important, as I said, for energy production and biomass growth. So out of curiosity, uh, Florian and Disha, have you guys had any mycoprotein? Not that I actively remember. Uh, no, not for me either. I mean, what I've eaten, though, is Marmite. And I mm -hmm. guess this is made from yeast. Mm -hmm. So, and definitely contains a lot of, of protein. Um, so if this counts, then yes. But I guess it's not uh, something you would consume to really satisfy your hunger. At least I, <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> 
Yeah, it definitely counts. One of the uh, bigger companies out there that makes that is well known for having their mycoprotein is corn, Q-U-O-R-N, and they make it from fungal processes. But I think there is um, probably th- dozens of other companies that are now doing it, and uh, I think it's super exciting. Yeah, it's like fungus is it takes up a very small amount of space. It doesn't take a lot to grow. It doesn't take a lot of resources to grow. It doesn't take a lot of space to grow. And if you can get protein out of it, then hallelujah. Exactly. And and I think what might also fall in this category is all this um, meat, artificial meat uh, from fermenters, which is a really growing market in the moment, I think, um, with artificial burger patties made in laboratories and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. that's definitely something that is, at least for me, very interesting because I'm constantly trying to reduce my meat intake, but often I'm I'm struggling because there's still a lack of options, still a lack of options at a lot of points in your daily life. Very true. Yeah, it's definitely a challenging, but definitely one of the best things you can do for the environment from right. a personal perspective. It's just another case of microbes making something for us. I mean, I think we're there's a lot of food process like food dyes and whatnot that they're also using microbes to produce as well. Yeah. I mean, they can even dye clothes. Yeah. Yeah. No limit to the amount of ways microbes can assist in our living. So back to this paper. This paper set up five processes of one, capturing solar energy, then converting this energy into chemical energy, converting this chemical energy to biological energy by feeding it to microbes, filtering this biomass to either dry biomass feed or further process it to dry protein feed and then of course feed it and they also looked at crop yields over 180 nations over a three-year period so they were very thorough with that that's pretty comprehensive and they selected soybean maize and sugar beet crops as soybean produces the most protein and sugar beets produces the most calories followed by maize and this Paper was also uh, performed using a mathematical modeling. So this wasn't any actual uh, experimentation they did. They used mathematical modeling, which takes into account the energy efficiencies of different metabolic processes, the energy efficiencies of solar panels, resource utilization, so on and so forth. And they made sure to use published data on the efficiency of the specific processes it's <laughs> a hard word <laughs> processes specific process that then the theoretical as it gives more accurate real world applications as an example utilizing fomate for the kelvin cycle yields an electron donor to biomass energy efficiency of 32 percent so technical yeah don't worry that's as technical as i'm getting with this paper <laughs> all right good <laughs> and so first they looked at the caloric yield when comparing these um, single cell proteins to soybeans and beetroot and maize. And overall, both whole cell and protein purified feed supported more energy yield than agricultural crops, with whole cell yielding more energy. And I should note that this is dependent on which metabolic cycle was measured, as protein purified showed less caloric yield as well as the energy source, uh, like the hydrogen, fomite, and methanol. And methanol yield yielded the most calories. This was also dependent on irritants levels or how much solar energy reached the surface. With the 
the single cell proteins increase in caloric yield with the higher the level. And it also, they also threw in for good measure uh, single cell proteins that were fed with sucrose extracted from sugar beets, which yielded consistency less caloric energy than other single cell proteins, even less than maize. And then finally, they looked at the protein yield specifically, and all single cell proteins were massively higher than the yield of soybean by over 10 times regardless of the electron donor. And to get a better picture, they compared the protein yield of single cell proteins to and soybean growth on one hectare. And the single cell proteins produce enough protein to feed 520 people for a year. A whole year? A whole year. Wow. And that's 15 tons of protein. Whilst soybeans can only provide 40 people enough protein for one year. And that was 1.1 tons. That's like pure protein, right? That's like thousands of protein yeah. bottles. <laughs> so overall, this paper shows that single cell proteins is a method to further study as it would require less land and could be done in urban areas or areas unsuitable for agriculture. It's climate independent and it has much higher resource efficiency than current mm. agricultural methods. So I think that's th something that we should invest more in. Yeah, I love that paper. I love the findings. I love the potential of it all. It's very exciting. Yes, it's, it's super exciting. I was actually now remembered, or I now remembered that I was listening to a podcast featuring a German scientist, Hartmut Michel. He received the Nobel Prize in 1998 for unraveling the structure of the photosystems together with the mm -hmm. other guys. And he is famous for criticizing biofuels because plants are so inefficient in biosynthesis compared to modern techniques like solar panels, for example. So this reminded me a lot of that plants are not the most efficient um, things to, to produce energy, or in this case, protein, which is kind of energy for humans. I think that's like something that most people wouldn't think about because, you know, growing up, plants evolved to use sunlight. So I guess we just assumed that they would be very, you know, more efficient than anything we can produce. Yeah, they're definitely the poster child. Yeah. All right. So our number three pick was Mars in a Box. Uh, Florian, what can you tell us about that one? Yes, um, this was a really interesting paper and I was happy that it was in the selection of the yeah, most um, liked uh, articles on microbytes uh, because I'm really a fan of, of astrophysics and, and all the science uh, that revolves around outer space. Um, so I was really happy to pick this one. And it is based, or the article Mars in a Box is based on the original paper Mars Box, which is one of this nice scientific acronyms um <laughs> gotta love those acronyms yes exactly um unfortunately i did not write down what it really stands for but it's <laughs> concatenation of a lot of uh, complicated words just to make up yep. this fancy acronym like always right um, probably no one will understand it if you knew it anyways exactly so the the full title <laughs> is mars box um, fungal and bacterial endurance from a balloon flown analog mission in the stratosphere um, wow. The research was conducted, amongst others, by Marta Cortesau and Katharina Siems at the German Aerospace Center in Cologne, 
and it was published in February 2021 in Frontiers in Microbiology, subsection Extreme Microbiology. <laughs> Uh, just to give you a little background on this uh, topic, so um, the research dealt with survival of different microbes in Mars-like conditions, hence the name Mars box or Mars in a box. So why is this important? Terrestrial microbes, so all the microbes that are living on our Earth, so far the only microbes that we know, uh, have the potential to spoil other habitable worlds or potentially habitable worlds like Mars, maybe. But there are also candidates like moons of Jupiter and Saturn. It is actually a research field that is called planetary protection. And this um, deals with measures to prevent contamination of this outer space worlds um, with Earth-born microbes. So this is important because, first of all, microbes from Earth could endanger endemic microbes on these planets or moons, if there are any, or they could at least obscure results um, for the search on biomarkers on these worlds. I didn't realize that was one of their functions, was to protect other planets that, have, that may have life as opposed to trying to seed other planets to start life. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it would also be very difficult for us to figure out what was first there, like, especially if you think about theories like the, uh, that the Earth was actually inoculated by comets or asteroids. This might have happened other, uh, on other places than Earth as well. So maybe similar life forms developed there, maybe DNA-based life forms, who knows? And, and if they are so similar, we might have a hard time to, to differentiate this, maybe. That's true. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then there's a second point, um, apart from planetary protection, that is the survival of potential pathogens uh, on extraterrestrial missions, uh, like for example, to Mars, because people or, or people on manned missions will be for a long time in a very um, tiny, womb and if some pathogens are thriving there this might be harmful for them so what they did in this research was to mimic martian conditions and there are already some efforts made to mimic this um, especially working in in deserts very dry and cold deserts like in antarctica or in southern america um, but they are not ideal um, for example they cannot mimic the extreme radiation that hits the Martian surface. Because Mars has no magnetic field, um, all the UV, X-ray, gamma um, radiation and cosmic background radiation can bombard uh, the surface. Apart from this strong radiation, Mars is not really uh, a nice place to be. The <laughs> atmospheric pressure is only 0.6% of Earth atmospheric pressure. And just to, to give you a feeling of what this means, um, this would qualify on Earth as a good vacuum. Um, <laughs> but it's still an atmosphere. And the average temperatures are extremely cold, around uh, 63 Celsius or uh, minus 63 Celsius or minus 81 Fahrenheit on average. Wow. So, yeah. That's really... Definitely not an 
yeah, definitely not hospitable. No. What about gravity? Ah, yeah, gravity is lower, but I did not note down um, how low uh, gravity is. But that's actually a good point. They also did not tackle this in, uh, in this paper. Uh, but I guess it will also be hard to, to have a constantly reduced gravity on Earth. So this is probably a factor that cannot be tested um, except you go to the ISS. Yes, I think there has been some research on uh, under microgravity conditions mm -hmm. uh, that can be mimicked. Yes, uh, I think that might be useful for this research as well. But I think not everything is possible for an experimental setup. There would be some conditions that cannot be mimicked appropriately. Yes. Yes, something can only be tested if you are there. <laughs> yeah, like uh, solar radiation. Was it? Uh... Yeah, this is actually something they um, they mimicked here in this study. So let me now come to what they actually did. Oh, um, okay. So they tested four different microbes by sending them um, tucked to a balloon, a weather balloon, into the atmosphere. More precisely, the mid stratosphere. 38 kilometers above sea level. Um, they had help from NASA um, with this. So it was actually a, a NASA um, balloon mission and they've put their experiment as a payload on this mission. And the stratosphere is ideal because it offers a stronger radiation than on the Earth's surface. It has desiccating conditions. It's extremely dry up there extremely low air pressure and cold temperatures, as you can imagine. So what they did, they constructed a box, um, the Mars box, um, which contained a sample chamber for their biological samples, as well as um, different devices to measure um, atmospheric param parameters, like pressure, temperature, radiation, etc., as well as an energy source. And as the biological samples, they used four different microbes, two extremophiles. And now we come to the section where what I'm most afraid of, the <laughs> taxonomic names of the strains that they used. I would just say, say it fast and say it confident. No one's <laughs> going to question you. I will give yeah, my best. I'm terrible when it comes to pronouncing bacterial names. Yes. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so they used um, three bacteria. I'm not sure if some of them are archaea. Uh, I did not look it up. So they used um, three prokaryotes. The first of them being Salinisfera shabanensis, um, which is a halophile from a brine pool 1.3 kilometers deep in the Red Sea. And they used this organism because there is a hypothesis that actually liquid brines might exist on Mars. Uh, my huh. guess would be under the pole ice shields of Mars because I couldn't imagine where else there is still water on Mars. Or maybe under right. the rocks, I don't know. <laughs> the second extremophile they used is Butiauxella, um, which they isolated from an anoxic sulfurous spring in Germany. And then they used two human associated organisms. One is the third pro prokaryote, um, Staphylococcus capitis, which is an opportunistic skin pathogen. And um, as the last organism, they used a filamentous fungi, 
very well-known Aspergillus niger or niger, Aspergillus niger. And the latter two, they actually isolated from surfaces inside of the ISS. So these are already species known to grow in a space environment. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, I was like, why, why would they choose those two? if they're human associated, but that makes sense yeah. if they were on the ISS. Yeah, I think they try to find species that make sense to try in this setup, but I had the feeling while reading this paper that it was still a little bit arbitrary. Mm -hmm. So what they did, they put these organisms, they cultured them in liquid medium and then dried them on small quartz disks. And they've put these disks in the sample box, two sets of these um, organisms, one, was exposed behind a glass dish um, directly to the radiation and the other one was shielded from the radiation. And then they had a third set of the organisms which they kept in the lab as a control. And the results of this research was that they could keep the test chamber at an altitude of 38 kilometers for around about five hours. And during this time, the samples received a dose of 21 microgray which is equal to 10 days of background radiation just on Earth's surface, which I found not so much. I, I thought they would test way, way heavier uh, radiation, but they were only up there for five hours. Oh, wow. Yes. That would be longer. Yeah, yeah. No, it was five <laughs> hours. So the, the total mission lasted seven hours with a balloon, I guess, one hour of ascent and descent each, and then five hours of mission time at the target uh, altitude. I wish I had experiments that lasted five hours. <laughs> Get that done in if a that'd day. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they had, a, they had a bit more work in the lab afterwards. Um, right, right, yeah. Yeah. So what they found is that um, the booty auxella did not survive at all. Not even the lab uh, condition survived. It's an anoxic species and uh, they kept it on the bench to, to desiccate, to dry on the quartz disc. So I guess it was already dying from the <laughs> atmosphere while they were preparing the sample. Right. Didn't even make it to the balloon. Uh, no, uh, probably not. Um, then the Salinisfera shabanensis, the, the brine microbe, the Salinisfera shabanensis. Um, the lab control as well as the one that was shielded from the strong radiation, but still up in the atmosphere, survived with the viability reduced by four orders of magnitude to the original culture. And of the cells exposed to the radiation, um, an even smaller fraction survived um, with um, a viability reduced by six orders of magnitude. Wow, yeah, so, so if that study went on for longer than five hours, it probably would have been None of them survived. This week's episode of the Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Accurate and reproducible microbiome analysis relies on well-defined mock community standards as well as optimized methods for sample collection, nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. 
Check out Zymo's complete microbiome workflow at zymoresearch.com. That's Z-Y-M-O-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. Yes, I guess so. I mean, I I, I think that uh, that the radiation would have at least uh, the 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 sample radiated would have died. Yes, yeah. that's my assumption as well. Then of the Staphylococcus capitis, um, the radiation exposed cells did not survive, and interestingly, and they give no explanation for this. Also, the lab control did not survive, but huh. the cells of um, <laughs> shielded from the radiation survived the experiment so yeah i don't know this was would make me a little bit um doubt yeah make make me doubting my my results if the lab control does not survive but the one up in the air survives but yeah yeah i, w- I was gonna say that seems like um i don't know if your positive control is it doesn't come out positive it's it's a redo. You got to redo. But yeah. I guess it's probably really expensive. Yeah, I guess they really balloon. only had this one shot. And yeah, then you have to live with what you get. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I was wondering if they even like we did the lab control just to see what happens. They don't mention it in the paper. Yeah. Because what, what, did any of the lab controls survive? Uh, Yes, yes, some lab controls survived. So of the this this brine microbe, the lab control survived, and the Aspergillus oh, yeah. niger, um, the lab control also survived. Fifty so percent of them survived in the lab setting. Yes, but not completely. <laughs> like they were all, the the survival rate was also reduced compared to the original cultures. So yeah, the Staphylococcus um, survived at least partially. The shielded cells, shielded from the radiation, survived, but their viability was decreased by three orders of magnitude. And now we come to the to the biggest success. Um, they sent spores uh, of Aspergillus niger um, with a balloon up into the atmosphere, and every sample survived. Even the lab control survived. So. <laughs> <laughs> And that's saying something. Exactly. And the lab control, as well as the shielded uh, cells, survived almost with no decrease in viability. And the non-shielded samples were decreased by two orders of magnitude in viability. Apart from this, other metabolic assays that they conducted also showed that the, um, the metabolic speed of all organisms that were sent up in atmosphere, but also kept in the lab as a desiccated control was slowed down. So they were all kind of affected by this experiment. Mm, Makes sense. Yes. So to conclude on what they found, um, yeah, they could study a multi-factor Mars-like condition. Um, They they had survival of two uh, of the three tested prokaryotes and uh, the fungus survived the best even exposed to to the strong radiation up there um so what they concluded is they they said that the bacteria and the the fungal spores if they were embedded in in a mars robot for example or a spacecraft um, so they would be shielded from the radiation they might survive a flight to mars and even on its surface 
And it is very likely that uh, human associated organisms like Aspergillus nidler will make their way to Mars because they are just traveling with us. Um, however, uh, and I think we, we tackled this, this weak point already, um, they tested it only for five hours in the stratosphere and the flight to Mars and the mission on Mars would take years. So instead of five hours, organisms would be exposed to these conditions for a very long time. And my feeling is that at right. least the bacteria or prokaryotes would die completely. The spores of Aspergillus might survive. I mean, spores are made to survive very harsh conditions. Mm -hmm. I know. I always wish sometimes that I could turn yeah. into a spore when I'm faced with hard conditions and just kind of emerge later when conditions exactly. are better. Kind of a hibernation. Yeah, it would be nice for 2020 and 2019 and 2021, <laughs> last two and a half years exactly. of our lives. We could all just sporally. I'm actually surprised that they didn't add, what was it, Dinococcus radiations? Yeah, Because it's so hardy against uh, radiation in I general. I know, they, they found that when it survived on the International Space Station for like two years. I'm surprised they didn't put that in. Or like a, a tardigrade or some of these yeah. species that have been known to sort of survive and thrive. Well, maybe not thrive yeah exactly survive. i mean I, I find it's it's really cool research that they did um and i think they first of all wanted to show that this balloon system is working um they are yeah putting a lot of emphasis on this in the paper that it was the first time they tested the stratospheric conditions and they encourage other researchers um to do more more research with this system so hopefully they, they might even themselves follow up with more more different organisms. Yeah, for sure. It's a really exciting preliminary results for sure. I have to say too, you know, we're always worried like what if space like microbes hit us, you know, what's that gonna do to us? But you never hear of like what can our microbes do to other planets? The egocentric point of view yeah, of life. Very true. Well, cool. I think it'll be really exciting to see where that goes in the future. So our number two pick for that people liked the most or voted upon for the best of microbiology 2021 was behind the scenes enigma of epigenetics. And this one is going to be Disha's article. Yeah, I would talk about epigenetics. It's a budding field in microbiology. In biology, actually, not just microbiology, it is the study of influence of uh, environmental factors on the genes of an organism. Recently, researchers have utilized epigenetics to design vaccine candidates. The researchers Lee Schreiber and Lars Hestberg Hansen published a review on epigenetics titled Epigenetics Memories, the Hidden Drivers of Bacterial Persistence on 1st March uh, 2021. To understand this review, we have to imagine a bacterium's life as a movie. For a long time, scientists thought that bacterial genome content is the director and the hero of this movie. How does a bacterium utilize food? How do the bacteria communicate? Uh, yet there was some phenomenon that could not be explained merely by random sequences of A, T, G, C. But with the advent of epigenetics in organisms bigger than the microbes, uh, like fungi or humans, scientists thought, whoa, it must be the epigenetics that can explain uh, these phenomenon. 
Now our audience will ask, what is epigenetics? Well, epigenetics can be the consequence of environmental effect or it can be a chance encounter where a nucleotide is methylated, meaning a methyl group is attached to that nucleotide while the nucleotide is still a part of the DNA sequence. This methylation changes the expression of the genes located near the methylated base. It can either enhance the expression of the gene, meaning the enzyme coded by this gene has an important effect, or it can completely turn off the expression, um, meaning that the gene does not have any function in the genome, and it's basically uh, void. This would mean that an organism behaves very differently with different methylation patterns. An example of this could be the vaccine designs uh, that have used the utility of epigenetics. For instance, there are these tiny molecules, uh, also known as O-antigens, on the surface of salmonella cells. Uh, salmonella is the most common cause of enteric diseases like diarrhea. When these tiny molecules, the O-antigens, they come in contact with the mammalian immune cells, a protective immune response is triggered. Um, and then this epigenetic switch determines the length of these antigens. And in turn, these antigens determine the intensity of the mammalian immune response. In summary, epigenetics serves as a contributing factor for bacterial evolution in response to the surrounding environmental conditions. Yeah, that's the basic summary that I've prepared. So yeah, I, I think um, this whole topic of, of epigenetics is, is super interesting. And um, what I know, I, I don't know super much about it, but what I know about it is that it is also giving uh, researchers a hard time that want to model organisms based on just their genomes. So um, you, you, you find a genome of, of or you find that the genome of two different or two, yeah, two individuals that you are conducting research on um, is the same, but they are still behaving completely different from each other. And this could be based on epigenetics. So I think it's a very important field. Of course. And I mean, for long, it has not been studied so well. Even the methylation patterns, the scientists are limited to one particular methylation pattern so far in bacteria. Uh, that's the 6-methyl cytosine, cytosine uh, being a nucleotide. And uh, then it, it, it's very limited. And then with the uh, short-read sequencing technologies that can detect only a specific type of methylation, it becomes even more difficult to study epigenetics. But then there are, uh, there are long-read sequencing technologies uh, for example, Oxford nanopore technologies or PacBio sequencing. Uh, what do these sequencing technologies do? They sequence large portions of the genome by either recording the current that is altered by these nucleotides, which can also catch uh, the methylation pattern of the nucleotides in question. 
but the short read sequencing technologies cannot actually detect the methylation patterns or the modification. Ah, okay, so then what I just said might already be outdated. Um, shame on me that I didn't update myself on 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 uh, yeah epigenetics. So the newer um, sequencing techniques are actually picking up um, methylations of all kinds. Cool. Yes, not so accurately. So PacBio does it very well. Nanopore sequencing technologies is cheaper, but it's near to the PacBio. I think it's more about the computational biology. Uh, algorithms that would have to jump in the wet lab uh, or the uh, technique is working fine but the computational biology the models that record these uh, current alters uh, alteration in the currents they are not very well developed and that's what the research is about also in epigenetics for uh, microbes i think that's it's so interesting i feel like oftentimes when Ever I've been taught about or people speak about epigenetics, it's always human focus. I don't think I ever thought about it in a, a prokaryotic cell, in a microbial cell before. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely makes sense that there would be some epigenetics in microbes as well. Yes. I think the one other example of epigenetics could be uh, that even one bacteria can have two different populations. During an infection cycle, salmonella is a classic example of that. So it is well known that 70% of the infecting population of salmonella is actually not virulent and only the 30%, the remaining 30% is virulent in a salmonella infection. Uh, this virulent population actually creates way for the remaining 70% to survive. Huh. It's, it's a bit uh, complicated the infection cycle but it's very interesting how a single bacterium can actually switch on and off their expression just by the methylation patterns yeah that's very interesting yeah that, that's really cool what what do you know the exact reason why they why they divide labor um in, in this way like 20 percent, 30 percent being responsible for for the virulency and the others just being opportunistic Yes. Um, so in salmonella infections, usually these infections in humans is chronic. That means they, that uh, it re reappears after a while. It is not fatal. It doesn't cause, cause an acute diarrhea, but uh, it causes diarrhea in uh, phases. What happens is that the 70% population that is non-virulent uh, can survive inside the small intestine. It does not attach to the tissue where it can cause the infection, but it just survives in the intestine. Uh, so you have to understand that the genome is still not altered of the 70% of the bacteria. It's just an epigenetic switch that has turned off their uh, virulence competency. Uh, because of the 30% of the salmonella that can cause infection, these bacteria get a chance to colonize the small intestine uh, to overcome the already existing gut microbial population in the small intestine. Uh, then after a while, what happens is that the person who is infected uh, is doing very well. It's he he's healthy, uh, no infection. Then let's say uh, the person ate something else, changed countries, traveled from India to some other country, and then the diet patterns changed. And then uh, the colonization pattern in the small intestine also changes. 
uh, what happens there is that the salmonella that is surviving inside the intestine gets a chance to express itself again and then infect the healthy person again. And in this way, the salmonella population keeps dividing. They are active. They are never really gone, even after the usage of an antibiotic. I was actually wondering if that was what was happening with the 70-30, because they, they want to make sure that they're not being overcrowded by other microbes. They want to keep their space there. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I think uh, that is also one of the reasons that they would actually divide themselves, uh, divide the labor amongst themselves. I love microbial behavior. Like it just is so interesting the different ways they've evolved or adapted to to find new ways to survive in all different sorts of environments that are constantly changing. Of course, me too. Community uh, microbial behavior is something that I'm really interested in. And it's such a good time to get into the field too, because the technology is, it's, it's always changing and always getting better to understand how these microbes are doing what they do every day. Yes, true. Yeah, I had no idea that we could detect methylation by a pack bio. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a really cool article. Thank you very much. And that brings us to our number one spot, which goes to, can we train computers to Prejudice, bacterial functions in plants. Tess, want to give this one a go? Yeah. So I really love this article. Um, It not only aligns with what I do, which is to study crop microbiomes to find ways to help farmers and put more food on tables and less food into trash. Uh, But it, it also just has a really wide application. And it's another one of those kind of preliminary researches that I think is going to expand into a whole new world or a whole new field one day. So like humans, plants, our crops, and food are covered with microbes, both inside and out. I like to think of it as a little city. So the microbiome is this little city. Millions of microbes are hustling and bustling through the host. Some have jobs to do. Others are just trying to figure out how to survive. Sometimes they knock into each other on the street, trying to go somewhere. And other times they lend a hand to a neighbor. But how can you predict how one microbe is going to interact with the other when they come in contact with each other? It's a little like trying to predict if two random people knock into each other on, uh, while crossing the street, what will happen? It's nearly impossible to know for sure, but you can make some assumptions based on past experiences. Florian, what is, what is one outcome that you might have if you knock into somebody on the street? Uh, I think I would first step back and, and just apologize, uh, mumble a, a sorry or the German equivalent, and then carry on. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one of the more common ways that uh, I think that interaction occurs. Disha, can you think of another interaction that might occur? Yeah, maybe I'll just ask them. So, hey, how are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could start a conversation. <laughs> yeah, that could be one way. Yeah, sorry, of course, uh, saying sorry and moving on is also one other way. Mm-hmm. John, can you think of a third thing that could happen? I mean, I'd never do this, but uh, I've seen fights break out. Oh, for sure. Especially <laughs> if, if one person's having a bad day beforehand, you could definitely get into arguments. Right. Sometimes the situations also have a, a certain comic moment, like both smile or even laugh a little bit if it's not a too harsh bump i would say but if you for example were yeah. both distracted by your smartphone in your hand then both 
parts might be a little bit embarrassed and and just smile it away. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's there's obviously tons of different outcomes that could occur from this simple interaction, and the same occurs with microbes. But just because we have come up with some of these probabilities, it doesn't mean that we have we definitely have not talked about every single outcome that could occur in this interaction. I mean, definitely we ha we can't rule out that perhaps both people were planned to meet in the middle of the street, bumped into each other, switch briefcases, and then they were both spies, and now they have government secrets in the other briefcases, and they just started an international scandal. It's improbable, but it could happen. It's, it's a good... That's wild imagination. <laughs> yeah, that's a good imagination. <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> Anyways, back to the plants and the, and the story I'm, I'm trying to develop here. Uh, so we have this microbial city. And it's nearly impossible to predict how these microbes are going to interact with another microbe or even the host at any given time in any given environment. You have the environment that's changing the landscape. You have resources like food and water that are constantly in flux. And in cases of agriculture, you also have things like tractors, machinery, and humans that are constantly going to be changing the microbial profile, at least on, on plant surfaces or even in the soil. But with tools like DNA sequencing, researchers are able to look at the capability of the microbe. They may not be able to know exactly how they're going to behave in any given situation, but they can look at the DNA sequences and compare it to other DNA from other microbes whose functions are known, and then determine a possible function that that microbe might be able to play. So historically, researchers have focused on pathogens, particularly of humans, and infectious diseases. Think cholera, tuberculosis, or COVID. Uh, you know, I always have to throw in a cholera reference. Always, every episode. Every episode. So researchers can analyze the DNA, the blueprint of the organism, and for the function based on how similar the DNA is to other genes with known function. But this only gets you as far as the database that you're working with, which again is historically built for pathogens of humans. But putting that pin in that for just a second, because there's another little point I want to uh, develop first. Um, so if we think not in pathogens, we have biocontrols. We have uh, beneficial microbes. We have probiotics. You can look at it from this side, too. How can we harness the potential of microbes in a beneficial way to raise our crops or to heal our guts? So in plants, for instance, microbes are capable of enhancing plant growth, protecting plants from diseases, um, which we call a biocontrol, and even aiding in the cre creation of more resilient crop systems. So enable to protect them either long term or um, against a pathogen when it's introduced. But with all these different functions and all these different capabilities that microbes may have, finding beneficial microbes can be very challenging as it's hard to connect health and resiliency to a single factor when you're looking at a full city. So one of the better known microbe protection mechanisms is through microbe-microbe antagonism. So we're just gonna take one single example. And so what this is, is microbes will naturally produce compounds that kill other microbes. This is how we got antibiotics. We call these, in addition to antibiotics, you can also have antifungals or um, you know, molecules that destroy, kill, or reduce the growth of fungi. So harnessing these compounds that harm a plant pathogen can create a natural microbial product that can protect crops. 
However, understanding which of the thousands of microbes associated with the plant are providing such benefits to the host is very challenging. How can you know which ones can provide the beneficial qualities? This was the question addressed by Matthew Biggs in his recent Phytobiomes Journal publication entitled Genomics and Machine Learning Accelerated Discovery of Biocontrol Bacteria. And this was our number one pick of the best micro moment of 2021. So I know that was a very long introduction to get there, but we are now going to be talking about the paper in a little bit more detail. Let's get into it. They used the power of machine learning and computers to help them discover bacteria that can help fight fungal diseases. So they're looking particularly at finding antifungals. Okay, so but what first is machine learning? It's not an AI takeover. Think of it more like um, a kindergarten for computers. It's a place for them to go and learn pattern recognition or finger painting. Okay, maybe not finger painting, but definitely the pattern recognition thing. Researchers can use example data or past experiences to train computers to optimize its performance. The performance in this case is how well it can predict the function of certain genes. DNA from thousands of microbes can be analyzed at once, and interesting candidate microbes can be identified, quickly diminishing the pool of microbes from thousands to less than 100. In Big's case, they were interested in finding antifungal genes. The goal is to find novel microbes that can be developed into microbial products. Microbial products can be alternatives to biofertilizers and pesticides and, again, can help develop more resilient crop systems. So what they actually did in the paper is they took 1,227 bacterial genomes and they told the computer, look through these genomes, look through all this DNA that we have for any patterns that are similar to known patterns of antifungal activity. The machine learning process flagged 72 isolates of the 1,227 bacterial genomes as potentially being antagonistic against fungus. There are several fungicides compounds that are already known, fungicide, um, fungicin, paralinitrin, zewitermicin, bacillicin, and sidarifor, and uh, pyveridin, to just name a few. And I probably pronounced many of those wrong because <sighs> chemistry is hard. But the researchers were kind of going beyond just defining what was in the databases. They trained the computers to look for similar patterns and predict which bacteria may have fungicidal genes, even if those genes are not in the databases currently. So researchers are not asking the computer to find an exact gene, but to use patterns to recognize potential functions of genes. In this way, they're able to find genes that have known fungicidal function, those in databases, and in addition, they also find novel fungicidal compounds without having to do very much lab work. Uh, may I interrupt you here? Um, what, I, what I think is, are they really able to, to find novel compounds? I mean, definitely, uh, I think they will find novel genes that do certain stuff and maybe even form novel compounds, but are they able to find novel um, mechanistics here, like novel agents against fungi with a, yeah, with a very novel way of action. Yeah, so a lot of that they aren't, they can't one hundred percent say for sure that what they're finding is actually going to be antifungal, right? But they can pull out these isolates, and so they went from one thousand two hundred twenty-seven genomes down to seventy-two, yes. which is a lot more manageable. 
and I can put those in the lab and actually test them for any antifungal uh, characteristics. So it's definitely not a way to uh, deterministically 100% be successful, but you can sort of filter down into smaller pool that then you can go try out into labs and determine if they actually have any antifungal activity. It definitely makes a lot easier screen to do, mm-hmm. for sure. That answer your question? Yeah, th- I mean, I'm uh, for sure. I think it it makes it easier to sieve out um, possible candidates. My only yeah fear would be that you also miss a lot of very interesting stuff. But on the other hand, you are not really missing it because the genomic data is still there, and and later research can still deal with finding the real novelties. It might for the moment be good enough to to use the AI technique to sieve out interesting stuff. Mm-hmm, definitely. And again, they're just looking at antifungals, right? So there definitely could be isolates out there that might help make the plant healthier in a way that's going to combat or, or fight pathogens later on. So they're, they're just looking at a single particular function. Um, and one thing that I thought was sort of interesting with machine learning is that I mean, like everything, there's no one right way. They actually looked at four different machine algorithms and uh, looked at the differences between them. Each one kind of produced slightly different isolates, and they were able to kind of take the ones that are overlapping in all of the different algorithms uh, as their potential isolates to test further. And several of them had never been identified as having antifungal activity. Yeah, so I got a chance to talk to Dr. Biggs, the author of the paper about using the different models and getting different results and kind of getting down to what, how, how important is this technique or how this technique can help in other areas. And he said, this is an exciting thing. The exciting thing is that the model doesn't have to be perfect. As long as the model performs better than random, then it is useful. Our method allows us to be more efficient and effective. So they can just kind of narrow down into what is important for their research question. And then I think this is probably where you get to the biggest lesson of bioinformatics and machine learning in the field of microbiology, uh, in my opinion, and I'm sure there are others that also agree, and I think we sort of touched upon this um, with Florian's question, is that after any bioinformatic analysis, it's vital to bring it back to the biology. So they have these isolates, they narrowed it down, but They have suspected antifungal properties, but they haven't tested it in real-life settings. You need to bring those isolates into the field where they can be tested and confirmed whether they have antifungal properties or not. And then you can do the further analysis down the line to kind of get at what is the mechanism behind what this antifungal, how this bacteria is producing antifungal compounds and what these antifungal compounds are. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And I think when this or the moment when this be- technique becomes super powerful is when you fully automate it. So I, I know of companies, um, uh, there's one company, Ginkgo in Boston, that uses mm-hmm. machine learning to predict gene functions, then puts the genes in different uh, expression hosts like E. coli, for example, produces or expresses a gene on small scale and, and puts a sample directly in the GCMS to see if there is any product forming. Um, and this way they see through genomes um, like, like no researcher can do by hand in the lab. And that's super cool. Yeah, and it could run 24 exactly. seven, you know, like there's no ending to it. 
or you can set it up and then leave and then come back the next morning and have results all sitting there on the table for you. I think it's machine learning is uh, machine learning, computational biology. I'm sure I'm sure Disha is also in agreement with this. It's just it's a fascinating field to be a part of right now. Definitely. I also think that um so, so you mentioned sometime back that the the authors used four different algorithms mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure that they would have made a consensus of the results that they got from these four algorithms and then narrowed down the result i think that's one other advantage that uh, computational biology offers you can do a lot of things at the same time you can run the four algorithms yeah. at the same time and then get the consensus but if you want to do four uh, followed four different methods in uh, experimental biology and then get the consensus it might take years to do that right especially if you have thousands of microbes at, at the start and trying to screen those out in the lab can take quite some time yes if you're doing in a lab setting uh, it also depends on what you're feeding them they're going to express things completely different to base of what media you're giving them as well so yeah that's years and years and years and years and years and years yes <laughs> there is so much room to screen i mean that's that's so amazing yes uh, uh, that's a good point jonathan uh, in fact there's another article on microbites which incidentally i wrote and which was published on 8th of december it was very much similar to what we are discussing here um there the authors tried to change the different uh, medium compositions and then decide how only 12 bacterial species change the communication amongst themselves uh, so i think that is also something that is touched by computational biology probably not so accurately as experimental biology but it's still a start definitely a start and definitely i don't know it's just going to be really interesting in the next couple of years the capacity of which we're going to be able to screen microbial genome um from all parts of the world and figure out their capabilities so i just want to end i had um one more quote from the authors of this paper and they said think of this as one possible application of machine learning to bacterial discovery let it tickle your imagination and inspire ideas for next steps in your own work so does anyone have anything else is everyone tired of talking <laughs> i'm more happy about the discussion i must say it it was they would for very different topics and very interesting all for i think yeah yeah i think the, the i was i always get a little worried when you ask people to vote and everything's going to end up being one-sided or super human focused but i got to say our audience did come and give us a good set of my or topics to talk about today true and i think there was each of us like of the top and we did the top 4 and each of us had our favorite and they all ended up being the top 4 articles anyways and none of us overlapped in our own interests which i think is fun as well definitely Yeah, we can easily just uh fall into talking about the same general area because of where we're working and mm-hmm. it's always good to like get a different viewpoint of microbiology. It's a nice breath of fresh air, I have to say. Cool. Well, that's the end of our show. We will put links in the resources or we'll put links to the resources we used in today's show in the show notes. 
Uh, or you can, of course, find these articles on Microbytes or at Microbi Gals on either one of our blogs. Uh, we'd like to thank Florian and Disha so much for helping us out with today's episode. And you'll be continuing to pop in and out, right? Yes, that's true. Uh, first of all, thank you for having us on your show. Um, I really enjoyed it. And yes, the plan is that from now on, we will, um, on, a, on a regular basis, pop into your show and present exciting uh, articles for microbytes. Definitely. It was really fun to discuss the different articles today. And I would love to discuss more in future. All right. Then bye-bye. Bye, bye. bye guys. everyone. Good night. We hope you enjoyed listening and we hope you keep your microbes happy and healthy until next time we see you in 2022. As always, keep those microbes happy. Bye. bye.